David O'Keefe, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is an interesting book in the sense it's not written in typical historical style. This happened, that happened, and the next thing happened, and this is why. This is more of a, an, almost a novel-like approach to it. Why, why is that? Well, it's a narrative. And I think um, for me, I mean, I've been teaching for 25 years, and there's nothing that is more powerful for delivering historical messages than the narrative. I mean, this is something that goes back in time. And I think it's one of those things where, you know, I made a conscious effort because I wanted to pay tribute to people like Steve. Stephen Ambrose and the work of Cornelius Ryan, where we have a lovely narrative that will take us on this incredible journey. And I think it was the best way of actually getting into the, uh, the story of the Black Watch snipers and particularly paying tribute to the men who were there. Now, you also get into great detail about the individuals. There's a lot of personal information there. How did you find that out? Well, I started, some of these men I met, oh, must have been about 25, 26 years ago when I joined the Black Watch myself as a young officer. And uh, when I did, I'd heard about Varia Ridge, but I didn't really you know, know a lot of the details until I sat down with them. And it was amazing to see just how much these seven days leading up to Varia Ridge, their battle at Varia Ridge, really marked them. And so um, working uh, not only as a young officer, but also as the historical officer at the time, I ended up uh, sitting down and interviewing them, some formally, informally, over many, many years. And so as a result, that was the genesis for the book and for the other documentary that I made for History Television a couple of years ago called Black Watch Snipers. It came from that idea of of these, you know, these conversations that I had with these men. And the, when you were talking to these then certainly very elderly gentlemen, mm. these are the kind of memories that are as fresh now as they were then, right? They are. I mean, a lot of the experiences that you'll see in the book, um, these were experiences that were emblazoned on their memories for various reasons. Now, of course, as an academic historian, I have to make sure that I, you know, do my homework and present the context properly, the historical context. Um, but as a result, I mean, these, you know, the, these these stories add the kind of color and the flair. And it's, um, you know, it's kind of like a Sunday afternoon book that you, you know, you kick up and you, you just join them on their journeys. But again, when you're talking about memories, uh, mm. I mean, Certainly the memory of, of the smell of burning hair, for example, yep. or, or the sights, the horrific sights. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you would remember whether you like it or not. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think you nailed on it, hit the nail on the head, whether you like it or not. There are things that will stick with you in, you know, in these moments. And that was one thing when I sat down with them and I had asked them, I tried to get them to be as descriptive as possible. And a lot of them, it was, wasn't just the sight, but actually the smell. And sometimes they would talk about the smell of the earth being kicked up and how fresh it seemed and how fresh it was. But then they would look around and see the bodies everywhere and then a waft of decaying flesh would come in. So it was, it was that kind of, you know, paradox, if you will, that really struck them and stayed with them forever. Now, tell me a bit about the Black Watch, which is mm. r right, properly known as the Royal Highland Regiment, right? That is correct. Canada's oldest Highland Regiment. Yeah. It's uh, probably the most storied regiment in Canadian history. As a matter of fact, it uh, came, it's Montreal-based, and uh, most of the officers came from the upper echelons of, you know, Canadian society. Most of them were captains of industry or political heavyweights. And the men in the ranks were mostly from the Anglophone communities, and they were working class kids. They were kids from Verdun and Point St. Charles and Griffintown and NDG and, uh, you know, Rosemount. And um, the unit um, was, like I said, quite storied. It made its reputation really in World War I. There were three battalions that were, um, that were raised and sent over to fight. They, um, they fought 
right through World War One, right from the Second Battle of Ypres right to the end. And, uh, you know, all three uh, battalions ended up standing shoulder to shoulder at the top of Vimy Ridge in 1917. So when they came out of the trenches, they came out with a certain reputation um, and also a certain attitude. Uh, as a matter of fact, they considered themselves the elite of the Canadian Army at that time. Whether others agreed with them or not, that didn't matter. Um, so they came out kind of like, well, I, I mentioned it in the book, kind of in sporting terms. They were the Montreal Canadiens. They were the New York Yankees or the Manchester United of the Canadian Army. Um, and as wonderful as that can be for morale, and you always want pride in your unit, um, there can also be a tipping point. And so as a result, when they went into Normandy, this was very much an albatross. They had to live up to their name. And, and that cost them many lives in many cases. It did, because that started to interfere with their decision-making. And so a lot of times, in particular at the end of the seven-day period, they're faced with an assault up Varia Ridge in broad daylight, uh, basically going up against Germans, some of the best units that the Germans have. They have to, you know, advance up a, you know, up a ridge into a horseshoe of fire with Germans on three sides. And, of course, they do have a discussion amongst themselves of whether they should do this or not. And at the end of the day, they conclude that for regimental pride, as Monk, as well as some other factors, that they have to do this. There is no way that they can say no and save face. Even if it costs them their lives and and most of the regiment. That, well, in their view, that's what was expected. Now, you also deal with the snipers, which if you you say the the Black Watch were considered themselves the elite, the scout troop snipers, uh, they considered themselves the elite of the elite, right? Did they ever? I mean, one of the things that I was telling you before about, you know, when I met them about 25 years ago, um, there were always a group of snipers within the veterans themselves who were, seemed to be a lot tighter. And, um, you know, a lot of times you'd hear from other members of the rifle platoons who would just say, you know, oh, bloody snipers, you know, they think they won the war. And I, after a while, you know, you'd laugh at that for a little bit and then you wonder, well, wait a second, why? Why do they feel this way? And a lot of it had to do with the fact that, of course, as you know, when they finally go up Varia Ridge, only 20 out of 320 men come back to be able to fight the next day. And some of the men that did come back were the snipers. And a lot of people don't realize, but after that happened, there was still one more day of battle for the Black Watch. And that was actually fending off the 9th SS Panzer Division, which was counterattacking. And what was left of the Black Watch, all of about 40 or 50 men, were, and most of them were snipers, were in a farm in this little town called Saint-Martin, completely surrounded. And they ended up putting in one of the best defensive shows probably in Canadian military history and just basically hanging on by their fingernails. But that moment really, you know, bonded them together. And that's what I said, you know, this is very much a band of brothers tale. And that really brought them together. So even, you know, 75 years later or 70 years later, when I was interviewing them for the last time, um, they were still calling each other. And they would call each other, you know, twice a year and probably birthdays and Christmas. And every time they would hang up with each other, they would tell each other that they loved each other. And I was absolutely blown away by that. And, you know, because that generation really doesn't speak in those terms. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you're, you know, a couple of men, a couple of guys, you just don't do that. But it was their experiences, not only at Verrier, um, but later on throughout the entire war. But the fact that they survived these seven days in hell brought them closer than brothers. Mm-hmm. What was the upshot of all of this, though? I mean, they obviously eventually did take Verrier Ridge, which was in many ways... Mm-hmm. Similar, I suppose, to to Vimy Ridge in the sense that they had a a slight high ground that they had to take against a well-dug-in enemy and well-prepared and 
although it cost them dearly, mm. they eventually managed to take it. Yeah, the Canadians eventually did. I mean, it took three kicks at the can, one on the 18th of July, one on the 25th, and finally on August 8th. Um, and without a doubt, I think you make a, a great comparison. This really is the Vimy Ridge of the Second World War for Canadian Army, uh, without a doubt. Um, they were fighting against the cream of the German crop. You have, you know, highly trained Waffen-SS divisions that are dug in up there. Um, these are veterans of the Eastern Front who know how, to, know how to fight in this kind of terrain. Even the Wehrmacht units, the Army units that were there also had vast experience you know, fighting on the Eastern Front. So when the second division comes in, this is the first time they come into battle in two years. And as you can expect, you know, kicking off um, as a green unit, you are going to learn some lessons and you're going to pay a very high price to do it. And sadly, that's exactly what happened uh, in the first and the second attempts to take uh, Verrier. I think what a lot of Canadians don't realize is that these snipers and these riflemen and these artillerymen uh, just a few years prior, had been bank clerks and farmers and car mechanics and so on, right? Yeah, I think that was one of the things that I, I found the most endearing part of doing this research was just looking back at their lives, what they were doing before the war, how you know none of these were real professional soldiers who had dedicated their life to soldiering. Um, you know, kind of like you know the people in my family, the same thing. We we you know everybody signed up during war, during times of conflict, and it was the same thing with these guys. Most of them were, you know, either looking for jobs because it was Depression-era, you know, Montreal or Depression-era Canada. Um, some of them, of course, you know, joined up because they really believed in what they were doing. Um, but, yeah, they all, they were all brought together by this, you know, incredible conflagration that was the Second World War. So where does this fit into the Canadian uh, effort in, in World War II? Well, to be honest with you, the Battle of Verrier Ridge, um, well, it's kind of two I'll come, two answers on this one. I mean, first of all, the Battle of Verrier Ridge is without a doubt the Vimy of the Second World War. I mean, you you know, once we get Verrier, we essentially crack the German defenses in Normandy and the rest of the German army starts to collapse at that particular point. But also, too, this is a seminal change for Canadians and, and also Canadian history and also for Montreal because remember that the casualties that are taken here by the Black Watch um, are the men who were supposed to be the leaders in post war Canada. Um, these are the men who were supposed to guide. They were supposed to come back to Canada and they were supposed to take us into a new era. And it, you know, you wonder just how much can, you know, Canada has changed for better or perhaps for worse with them losing their lives at Verrier. Why do you want people to read this? It's an essential part of Canadian history. This is a moment that has in some cases kind of fallen through the cracks but it really is about an incredible moment uh, in time for Canadians. What I, I want people to really understand or, or basically to develop is empathy for them. You know, they went through seven living days or seven days of living hell. There's no doubt about it. Some of the fiercest fighting we've seen in the Second World War, probably since Passchendaele in World War I. And I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's the idea that we need to get back and we need to truly understand what these people went through, what they were faced. And that's one of the reasons why I ended up writing it the way I did. The idea of a journey, going in and walking in their footsteps yet again, which I think is important for any endeavor in history. David O'Keefe, thank you very much for this. Thank you, Mark.